just as a reminder to everybody, computers came as a result of an abstract mathematical question, not because anybody was hoping to build a computer. At least very rarely does somebody come along and say, I want to build a computer and that's how computers are invented. More often than not, there's some intrinsic human curiosity about a subject and that inadvertently results in some major advance that we can all benefit from. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another exciting episode of After Office Hours. Today we had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Hashim Al-Hashimi. Yes, Dr. Al-Hashimi is the James B. Duke Professor of Biochemistry and Chemistry and the Director of the Duke Center for RNA Biology. I have to be honest, this is probably one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the podcast so far. We talked about a huge range of topics and ideas uh, that I found really fascinating. Yeah, Dr. Al-Hashimi is a biochemist and structural biologist by training, but more recently he's gotten involved in research that kind of centers around viewing biological molecules as machines. So that definitely added a pretty unique perspective to our conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Dr. Ahashimi, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. We want to kick off with a question. So we saw on your lab website, I really love that you had the following quotation from a Richard Feynman. It says, everything that living things do can be understood in terms of the jiggling and wiggling of atoms. So in what ways has Feynman served as an inspiration for you in your research? Oh, that, that, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I really love that quote uh, from Feynman. Um, and I actually did grow up reading his book, Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, which, of course, is a, is a, is a great book. Uh, that quote, I thought, captured uh, the essence of the work that we're doing in my lab and the way we view uh, biology, which is you know, really, if you look around and you ask the question, you know, what, what is a living organism, it's, it's a bunch of molecules that are jiggling and wiggling and interacting with one another. And so I really think that uh, that, that, that quote hit the mark for me. Uh, I don't know if Richard Feynman's other work uh, was itself inspiration for some of the things we're doing, but most definitely his view of, of molecules and atoms. He always was fascinated with the jiggling and wiggling of atoms, you know, to explain like how rubber bands work and, you know, and how electricity works. And so I think that that, that that's definite inspiration for anyone who's interested in the, the dynamics of even living organisms. Absolutely. As, as you've gone deeper into your research um, and really delved into like biology in general, have you found that the field of biology is, do you find any beauty in it? And if so, what do you think is the most beautiful concept that you've uh, studied so far? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I, I actually very recently have, during the pandemic, gotten into a particular um, area of research. It's, it's mostly been a project that I've been doing almost by myself, which is horrible because I don't have my trainees to help me with it. But I've come to realize that there are deep connections between biology and in particular biomolecules and computational machines. And what, what, what I mean by that is that I don't mean to say that, you know, computer science is helpful to understand biology. What I'm trying to say is that there's a very deep connection between the logical architecture of a computer 
and the logical architecture of something like a cell. And that commonality extends all the way into the individual biomolecule. So I'll give, I'll give you what I mean by that. So over the pandemic, I started reading about Alan Turing, who of course invented the modern computer. And in his paper, where he outlines the basic underlying logic for what is computation, if you, if you read that paper, it literally says, here's what the computer has to be able to do. Uh, so he imagined having a scanner, you know, some kind of device that can scan a huge tape, which was segmented. And on each segment, there was either a zero or a one. And the way his machine, this very first computer, it was an imaginary computer, worked was that the scanner would read the number. So it would have the ability to say whether it's zero or one. And then there was a transition table that told, it's like an instruction table that told the machine what to do. So for example, the transition table could be, if you read zero, move one step to the right or one step to the left and you know erase what's there or write one on that square, some kind of instruction. And so that seems reasonable. You would imagine a computer would require such operational you know, uh, control. But here is the most amazing part of Alan Turing's computer. And that is that, so he was trying to emulate literally a person performing arithmetic. So imagine you're doing a multiplication, you know how you at some point you multiply, then there's a number and then you start adding, you go from multiplying in your head to adding. So there's a change in your state of mind because you're going from addition to subtraction or addition to multiplication. So Alan Turing added this one additional, what I consider really enigmatic, component to his machine, which is that he allowed it to have states. And he thought of those states as literally states of mind. So you start with a given state, you might be in state A, and the instruction table would be that if you are in state A and you scan a zero, move right one step, erase whatever is there and type one, now update the state to a new state B. Because you know later on you might, so states were fundamental uh, components of computation. You look at that and it's remarkable because that is exactly what biomolecules do. Enzymes, they have one structure, they bind, scan their substrate, they then change structure, they change conformation, i.e. change state, and then they perform an operation like catalyze a reaction, you know, add a functional group or remove it, and recycle. So to me, the most beautiful concept that emerges that I've seen is the encoding of computation in biological system through the changes, through the jiggling and the wiggling of atoms. So the way molecules change their state of mind is through Richard Feynman's jiggling and wiggling of atoms. That's how they do it. And that's necessary to perform computation. I never thought to think of uh, like biological states relating them to computational states, but that's really cool. Do do you think that the progression of artificial intelligence and neural nets, do you think that in order to progress in that field, we're going to need to better understand biological systems and implement trends that we see from biology into uh, kind of the other way around from what you described? Oh, you know, that again, great question. Because uh, as I said, I'm, I'm really diving into this area now. I'm very, so as you may already know, neural networks were inspired by biology. So by, you know, by modeling of the behavior of neurons. And so some of the most, the earliest neural network models were in fact inspired by biological systems. And 
In fact, if you look back, um, I'll tell you a quick story, if I may, because the answer to your question is yes, and there's already a ton of historical precedent for it. I'll give you my favorite story in that regard, which is that if you asked anybody who discovered the central dogma of molecular biology or who discovered, you know, why we have DNA, I think most would argue that that came with the discovery of the DNA double helix, right? And that gave birth to molecular biology as we know it. Well, that actually is categorically wrong. There's a whole story that connects back to Alan Turing uh, that I'll very quickly tell you about that has to do with another uh, person who was interested in computer systems, which is John van Neumann. So John van Neumann is the scientist credited with the development of the modern computer architecture. Your computers right now run what's called the van Neumann architecture. He was a mathematician who did all kinds of amazing things in science. But van Neumann was really interested in comparing natural and artificial machines, you know, so he always felt that the two could be compared and that they had to have lots of commonalities. And by that, I mean, like, you know, compare a living organism to a a computational machine of some sort. And in one approach, he was looking at living organisms and he thought, you know, organisms are strange because they have this capacity to evolve into more complex organisms. And he thought that's strange because if you took an artificial machine, the artificial machine would not have that ability because he felt that it would have to, by definition, degenerate because a machine couldn't build a machine that's better, bigger, more complex than its maker. And in trying to build an artificial machine that can build a machine more complex than itself, Van Neumann came up with a scheme that includes a constructor, a tape that goes into the constructor, a device that copies the tape, and mutagenesis that changes the tape as a random process. And he imagined that this device, this imaginary device, would have the tape, which has all the instructions built into it to build another machine. Uh, That's the Turing tape. So he took inspiration from Alan Turing. This tape would go into this machine and tell the machine, the machine had access to all kinds of assembly units. So then the machine would grab the pieces and construct them. And then at the end, the machine would take the tape and make a copy of it. And after copying the tape, feed it into the new baby machine. And then the baby machine would continue on. And the idea that von Neumann had was that when you copied the tape, sometimes errors occur. And so as a consequence, you could end up building a machine that's different from the original machine. And while most errors will cause problems, on rare occasions, they might allow a more complex machine to evolve and thrive. And so quite literally uncovering the central dogma of molecular biology as we know it and Darwinian evolution before, this was many years, maybe seven years before the discovery of the DNA double helix. And he did so by insisting that he could, in effect, come up with an artificial equivalent to natural machines. And so there's this very deep connection, I think, between the biological and the artificial systems that von Neumann and Turing were very keenly aware of that others have since built on. And so I think in the, looking into the future, I think if we are able to decom- decompose biology into its computational components, that computer scientists will be able to mine the biological universe to discover new algorithms, new forms of computational machines to actually advance new computational models. And inversely, of course, uh, you know, if we are able to decompose biology in terms of machines, we'll be able to predict biology better as well. Yeah, so it's, you know, just from speaking with you for a few minutes, it's very clear you think in 
both computational and biological terms, right? And as someone who has done research in molecular biology, it's, you know, obviously not all biologists or biochemists think like you do. How, how, have you always thought in this way? What was the first time you remember doing research and did you have this sort of like dual inspiration or did, did one of the, did the computational side or the biological, biological side that like come later? That's a good question. So the answer is absolutely not. So what happened to me was, but I'll tell you what, what is true is that when I was a graduate student, um, I first encountered another student who was studying the dynamics of a protein, looking at how it jiggles and wiggles. And at that time, I thought it's insane. At that time, it was not at all thought to be that important to study the dynamic, the state, the, the changes of state of mind of biomolecules, you know, there was always one state which you could capture by crystallography. And, you know, especially after the structure of the double helix, which by the way, has to melt and has multiple states in it of itself. But, you know, at the time, I felt a very strong feeling that these dynamics would have to be important. This is back in 95, but really couldn't explain why, you know, it just seemed that uh, intuitively, you think of life as being dynamic, right? And time being an, a, a fundamental aspect of life. But it was very difficult to really pin down why ultimately these motions would become important. Throughout my career, what I began to realize is that if you want to quantitatively predict, you know, theoretical physicists like to make predictions. You know, they predict, you know, what's going to happen to the planets after a few hours and where they were going to be or predict the weather. And But biologists, I find, molecular biologists in particular, you know, the, 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 the quality of the predictions we make is pretty limited. So, for instance, if I were to ask you, if I make a mutation to this protein, will you tell me how well will it catalyze this reaction? You know, will it not catalyze it at all? Will it be 10% efficient? Will it be 90% efficient? We, that, that notion, that kind of quantitative predictions are not something I feel that the molecular biology field has embraced as, as, a, as part of its DNA. There's qualitative descriptions, you know. Yeah, if I mutate the protein, it doesn't work anymore. Okay, well, that's interesting, but it's not particularly quantitative and, 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 and illuminating. So throughout my career, what I've began to appreciate is that these dynamic properties of macromolecules is the, one of the missing links to going from a descriptive molecular biology to one that can actually physically put numbers on what will happen to a reaction before you perform it in terms of like, will it be 10 times faster, 10 times slower? And that's something that, uh, of course, many kineticists have appreciated over the years Everybody studying kinetic mechanisms have been, in fact, championing this more predictive uh, view of biology. I feel many of the molecular biologists and others uh, maybe haven't embraced it as much. There's now, of course, systems biology, which also is getting more quantitative and more, you know. But for me personally, that's where I began to look at things, at least in a, in a, in a predictive manner. But this computational view of biology only crystallized with me, at least personally, uh, almost a year and a half ago when the pandemic started. And I was just uh, reading around a variety of topics. And the person that actually, uh, I should say, the, the story about uh, von Neumann that I just mentioned and Turing and them being perhaps arguably the founders of molecular biology, um, most, most scientists don't appreciate this. But it, it's, not a, it's not a tall order. I'm not really exaggerating by saying that, saying that they are the first to lay out, not Turing, but von Neumann, laid out the outlines of the central dogma of molecular biology many years before the discovery of the double helix. And, you know, the person that knew about this and championed it is one of my heroes, and it's Sidney Brenner. So Sidney Brenner was one of the founders of molecular biology. He was working, he was one of the first people to see the structure of the double helix or the model that was presented, you know. And, and Sidney Brenner always reminded everybody that it was von Neumann 
who was the first to discover the central dogma and its outlines. And really, and, and if you ask the question, you know, why did von Neumann feel so strongly that he had to copy the DNA? Because remember, he had a device. He, had a, he didn't have to do, at the time, we knew nothing about DNA being the genetic molecule and all that. But, but there was a very deep reason for why he decided that you needed to, when you made this evolving system, that you had to make a copy of the description of the machine. And the reason for that is if you didn't do that, the description of the machine would have to have a description of itself. So the, the, the tape being part of the machine would have to encode a description of its own self. And this is something called, this, is, this kind of self-reference is something that's wreaked havoc into the history, in the history of mathematics has caused all kinds of problems with uh, Kurt Gödel's famous, for example, this, provable, this statement is unprovable. This was a, a mathematician that showed that a logician, when Kurt Gödel derived essentially the statement from the axioms, derived the statement that this statement is unprovable. And so these self-referential um, problems had wreaked havoc in the history of mathematics. And so von Neumann was very aware of this. And he knew that if a blueprint had to have a description of itself, that this would go at infinity, at infinitum, because you'd have to have a blueprint describing a blueprint describing a blueprint. So the way he solves the problem, the only way to deal with it is to say, I'm not going to have to describe myself. I'm going to let the tape not do any work to describe itself. I'll just put a copier. I'll just make my device come along with a very cool copier. And all I have to do is put the tape into the copier and make a copy of it and be done with it. And by the way, while I'm copying it, I might make an error, and that might allow for Darwinian evolution. And so there you go. That's why living organisms carry a self-description in the form of a genetic molecule, and this is why you copy the description. Uh, and, and so that was really, I think, uh, a clear example of how, how uh, you, you have this, by, by, by trying to look at things computationally, uh, or, or, or trying to look at the art, like, you know, trying to build an optimal machine, you can discover why biology did what it did in natural machines as well. That's fascinating. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting because I think most people like know about, you know, obviously what Watson Crick did and, they, you know, most people would know about what von Neumann, but they don't think about him in terms of, you know, in, in this capacity. So Becky and I are both BME. We studied biomedical engineering. So what you're saying sounds awesome to us. And you know, maybe you should be in charge of this, the syllabus for all the bio courses from now on, because that sounds way cooler. <laughs> you know, that's a great idea. Maybe I should have a freshman seminar on it. That could be a cool freshman seminar, you know, as well. I, I guess for BMEs, right, the way we take biology, it's just so, I mean, I think you have a good point. Like, it's not computationally or, you know, just modeling inspired at all. It's sort of just the basic biology. And I think it's really important to, like, think about these things from a, you know, from an early standpoint. And it's also exciting that you're you're finding that even at your stage in your career, where sort of you've you you've accomplished so much, like you're still finding ways to learn and do new things. I mean, that's I think that's honestly one of the most exciting things to see. Yeah, you, you know, one thing I want to add to that because you know that you mentioned this, I should say there is a field of DNA computation, and so what happened was after von Neumann, uh, just to make I agree with you completely, and in, in fact there there are people who are thinking, so I want to be clear that I'm not the first at all by any stretch of the imagination to, to kind of um, come to this realization. The, uh, one thing I will say is for me, the connection between state of mind and state of structure 
that's something that relates to my own work. But the idea that biology, bio, biomolecules are computational machines goes back to the 60s. And, but, and the person that really uh, crystallized the notion of computation in biology is Len Edelman, who is a mathematician who, has nothing to, who had nothing to do with biology, arguably. And he did a brilliant experiment where he showed that by simply using the specificity of DNA strand annealing, the fact that DNA would hybridize only with its, with its complementary strand, but not with something else, he could take that biological specificity and translate it into an algorithm that solves a algorithmic problem, uh, which is the traveling salesman problem. It's the problem of, you know, if you had to, you know, uh, go, you have to travel to six cities and there are these various connections between the airports, what's the best way to visit each city but visit each city only once, you know, because the traveling salesman wants to be efficient. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a non-trivial problem. I, I think it's, a, it's one of those problems that can grow exponentially. And what Len showed is that by encoding the problem in terms of single-stranded DNA molecules and then allowing them to hybridize, the solution emerges right there from what the duplex is that you end up with. And that was just a brilliant realization that computation is nothing but following a set of instructions. You know, that, that's, that's it. So as long as you have specificity, which is at the heart of biology, so if you think about what is specificity, it means you do one thing, but not something else, right? It's a form of instruction. And so by definition, now, now it gets a little bit hairy because you can say, well, everything is computational. And the answer is, yeah, the weather is computational. You know, everything is computational uh, because in one way or the other, everything you know, follows the rules of physics. Uh, but I think it's an important, but I think there's value to bringing that thinking to biology because sometimes... Uh, you know, we, for example, if von Neumann figured out the central dogma of molecular biology by thinking computationally, what are the other concepts that we have missed out on because we're not trying to think in those terms? So I think what, one of the art, I'm trying to work on a project now to write the story of von Neumann in, a, in an article to, to inspire uh, others to continue to think in, that, in those terms because maybe there's other things that we could be uncovering today before even doing any experiments. Today, everybody's just collecting massive amounts of data. You know? I feel like we're collecting a lot more data than we're thinking. <laughs> and I think there's, there's, there's time, there's, we need to relax and do some more thinking. You know? <laughs> For sure, and, and so you, you mentioned um, a lot about how, in the theoretical sense, in the conceptual sense, how biology and computation are so um, intertwined and really inseparable. And even in a more like practical and application sense right now, there's a computational revolution taking over every field, including biology. What are your thoughts on how student biologists um, and future biologists can prepare to enter this field where you're saying people are collecting data at massive rates now um, and don't even know what to do with it? How, how would you suggest a student best uh, prepare for this? The, so, so I think for students, you know, the, so one thing that I feel is important is that we need to look at our curriculum. And you know, right now, computer science and biology are essentially two separate fields. But in reality, they're both a field that studies machines, you know, it's, it's whether it's an artificial machine or a natural machine, machines share a lot in common. And in fact, you know, von Neumann was, before he passed away, he was writing a book on what's called the general theory of automata, which is a book about just the general principles of any machine, whether it's artificial or natural. And so for students, I feel that our, we could do a better job of deleting or erasing some of these artificial boundaries I mean, of course, it, 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 there's room for expertise and specialization, you know, but there is also a lot of commonalities. And I feel that we could do a better job with the curriculum 
um, having courses that uh, look at the fundamental principles of any machine and, and show the parallels between the natural and the artificial, show the parallel between a network and a neuron, like a neural network and a neuron, and how they work side by side, you know, show the von Neumann machine versus a replicating cell and explain why that, uh, how that works. So I feel that at the curriculum level, there's definitely a lot more of that that we can do. But also in terms of the, you know, back to the question you were asking about, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't be collecting lots of data. I mean, that's, it's great that we're collecting lots of data. But, but, but uh, an interesting thing is you could ask the question, why did Alan Turing build the computer? And actually the, the reason for it is not obviously to create the basis for von Neumann's future idea of a self-replicating machine, but he was trying to answer the decision problem. This was a problem in mathematics, which has to do with, you know, if I give a statement in mathematics, can you write, can you write a general algorithm that can tell whether this mathematical statement is derivable from the said axioms? You know, so if I have a bunch of axioms, you know, which define, you know, inevitable truths, and I give a statement, is there a general algorithm that can tell whether or not this statement can be proved from the axioms? And what, what, what Turing showed was that, no, you cannot do that. And what does that mean for us and for biology? What it means is that you cannot write a program, no matter how powerful, that can predict the fate of another computer program. So if you have a computer program that you wrote, I can't write a program that will tell me precisely what the fate of your program is going to be. The only way to do it is to perfectly copy your program or write a program that literally perfectly mimics it, you know, that does exactly what it's doing effectively. So what does that mean? That means that if you are a biologist and you are studying the product of computation, let's say all the data you're collecting is the output of biological computation, Turing tells us that we will never be able to understand deeply what the system is about by just trying to draw relationships between the product, we need to understand the algorithm. The underlying, we need to be able to perfectly reproduce the underlying algorithm that the machine is running. And so instead of you know, looking at the data, why not just dive deeply into the molecular components that are performing the calculations and then decoding what is the algorithm? You know? And then only then will you be able to, in a sense, predict the fate of a cell or an organism. Uh, that's the only way to do it. And so I think that is an important lesson for students, which is that becoming more predictive about biology and insisting that we don't just understand it and describe it, but we really write down a framework that allows us to make predictions about will the cell divide, yes or no? Maybe that's hard to predict, but you know, what will happen to an organism if I grow it in D2O? Or you know, make quantitative predictions about biology rather than just accepting a, a description and often, you know, what's often said is, oh, it's too complicated. Biology is too complicated. I, I, I think that's an overstatement. I think that's people who are being lazy and don't want to decode and actually figure out what the algorithms are, you know, because I don't think it's complicated, but I, but, but I don't think we've approached the complexity with the right mindset, you know. And I, I think that's really cool because that also sort of justifies why you need computation and, you know, basic science together, right? I mean, why one cannot just like, why both of them together are necessary and like equal partners. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. Do you think that biology in general, this is kind of like a big picture conceptual question, but do you think that biology in general could be reduced to a set of really complicated algorithms? I believe so. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's absolutely possible to do it. 
And I think that we are doing it. So it should be, it should be noted that, you know, systems biology, uh, so there's, you know, there's a different, so what happens is that computation happens at different length scales, you know? So like, you know, and, and every computation that occurs at one layer influences the layer above it. So let me give you an example. So for instance, you know, you've got the molecules themselves, the enzymes, catalyzing reactions at the molecular level, and they're changing states of mind by changing structures through the jiggling and wiggling of atoms. That then in turn, that's the molecular interaction of a few molecules. That then can maybe change the overall global expression of the proteome or the RNA, the transcriptome in a cell, and maybe influence, you know, whether the cell ends up becoming cancerous or not, or whether it divides now or later. And then that in turn influences the structure of a tissue, and then and then you can go to an organism. And so there's multiple hierarchical layers to the code, and there's much lots of subroutines. And so what needs to happen is you almost have to decode things at multiple layers, you know. And so the the fundamental unit of computation is the biological molecule. That's where it all starts. So you you cannot, according to Turing, take a shortcut and only look at things at the systems, like in systems biology, a molecule is drawn like a little circle or a square and it's got a symbol, right? It's a thing that has inputs and outputs. Well, that's a level of course grading that may or may not be appropriate. You know, the real unit of computation is the structure and the three-dimensional position of all the atoms. And we need to make sure that we're not oversimplifying the features of computation. And in order to do that, we really need to start at the biological molecule level, do that decoding, which I think is feasible. And many who study kinetics, you know, this field of what's called kinetic mechanisms, you know, trying to understand biological processes in terms of individual steps. You could think of these steps as different lines of code in a program, you know, uh, that that is the way to go. Unfortunately, this type of deep kinetic mechanistic study of biological systems is increasingly falling out of fashion. You know, it's not, it's not your omics. It's not generating, you know, thousands, you know, why are you studying your one molecule when you could be studying a million, right? So the question of taking one molecule and studying it to its final conclusion, which is, to, that is to decompose it into its code that, that, that it carries out, the algorithm. Each molecule has its own computer program. I, I truly believe this. In fact, I, I mean, me and my trainees wrote the program down for a DNA polymerase that copies DNA. You can write it down in, in literally in a computational programming language. And you can also draw it like computer scientists like to draw it in terms of state diagrams, you know. So I, I, one can do this for all biological molecules. And then from there, run the program and make predictions at a higher level and then, you know, see what happens. Uh, unfortunately, because as I mentioned, these studies, these deep studies of kinetic mechanisms are not, you know, you, it's hard to get that funded nowadays because why study one molecule when you can study a million? So I feel that there's, there needs to be a balance, you know, and while it's obviously important to have these comprehensive views of biological systems, and that's a great um, and important advance, we shouldn't lose sight of the sort of, you know, one molecule at a time, but really trying to understand it. And I feel very good now because when somebody asks me, what are you doing with your molecule? I can literally answer in a very concise you know, way and say, I am decoding the program that this molecule runs. What are you doing? You know, and then we can go <laughs> and have a discussion about that. You know? <laughs> You are blowing my mind by describing these subprocesses as subroutines that you would have in a program and as lines of code because it makes perfect sense, but I've never even thought to think of it like that. Um, you seem to also have a really deep understanding of like scientific history um, and like the history of different mathematicians and scientists that lived in the last hundred years. Is that something you've always been interested in or something that you kind of came across as you were doing 
work. Recently. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I was always, I would say, broadly interested in many areas, intellectual areas, you know, not just science, but, um, you know, history to some degree. Uh, certainly, that's something that I've had since I was a, this interest I had as a kid. And that's what drew me really to academia in a way, you know, was this, and philosophy, uh, you know, so I, I, I had, I've always had that interest. And, but over the course of one's career, you know, nowadays, unfortunately, um, not, you know, there's so many pressures on our time um, to, for example, you know, raise uh, grants or just running the, the infrastructure of a laboratory is a lot of, you know, one, one has to put the right amount of effort into the various components. So there's not much time left to, as, as I would like to have, you know, to dwell on other things. But the, to be honest, the pandemic provided an interesting window. And I, I, I realized there's this thing called Amazon and you can buy any book you want. It's like, a, it was like, I was a graduate student again, because when I was a graduate student, me and my friends would always just buy books and, you know, use your R's typing to buy books and just whatever books. It's, it's a dangerous discovery though. So then I discovered Amazon and I'm actually not poor anymore uh, because I'm not a graduate student and I can afford to buy those books. So I have literally been spending, uh, yes, our budget has been tanked because of the amount of money I'm spending on books. So I, so I, I, I reignited that interest and it's been a great one of the great outcomes for me, at least personally, for the, from the pandemic. And so I got into, I started pulling on this thread of Turing and von Neumann. And that's what, in part, why I became interested in, in the history of mathematics and where all of this came for. Because, again, just as a reminder to everybody, computers came as a result of an abstract mathematical question, not because anybody was hoping to build a computer. You know, and just, again, this idea that we really should focus on curiosity-driven science and then not forget about that. And, you know, nobody, at least very rarely, does somebody come along and say, I want to build a computer and that's how computers are invented. More often than not, there's some intrinsic human curiosity about a subject and that inadvertently results in some major advance that we can all benefit from. So so switching, switching gears a little bit to one of the specific areas that your research focuses on, which is RNA dynamics. You know, I, I wanted to ask... Um, you know, I was recently reading a biographical work about Jennifer Doudna for our listeners that this was this year's Nobel Laureate in Chemistry for the discovery of CRISPR. And, you know, it, it talks about like her early work on the Human Genome Project. And then it talks, it, it spends quite a, uh, a lot of time like focusing on the switch she made from studying DNA to RNA. And it's interesting because at that time, you know, things like RNAi, like, you know, people didn't know the power of RNA. And so in, in the book, at least the author states that, you know, uh, Doudna sort of pursued RNA out of like sheer curiosity. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what first you drew you to studying RNA as a molecule because it's an incredibly like complex and very interesting molecule. And what excites you about studying it um, today? Oh, that, that's a great question. So you know, what I started. So actually, when I was a graduate student, quite literally, when I became interested in the dynamics of molecules, I was at Yale where Jennifer Doudna was an assistant professor. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to have lots of conversations uh, at various you know, gatherings with happy hour with students. And Jennifer would be there doing her amazing RNA work while we were talking about uh, how can we measure the dynamics of these protein molecules. And what happened literally was that because it's very difficult to make these measurements you know, of the jiggling and wiggling of atoms, um, you know, the it was very hard to apply the methods that I was developing as a graduate student to proteins because they're kind of rigid, you know? Proteins are these like, I mean, they, they jiggle and wiggle, don't get me wrong, but their movements are small. And when you're developing a tool, 
a new microscope that can see the motions, it pays off if the motion is big, you know, so that you can say, yes, I'm seeing it and my method is working. So I was at the time just interested in developing those tools. And I thought, you know, RNA is way more flamboyant. And that was known uh, because nucleic acids in general, in particular RNA, it's this very flamboyant and dynamic molecule, arguably the most dynamic of all, of all three, if you take DNA, RNA, and proteins. And so why not, you know, pursue nucleic acids and RNA in particular uh, as a means of amplifying the signal in my measurements? And working with my postdoc mentor at the time, that plan panned out better than I could ever have imagined. So yes, RNA was more dynamic. And yes, I got my amplitude signal that was much greater. And so for me, it was much more like a, I wasn't in love with RNA biologically per se, but I loved it more because it was very flexible and dynamic and I could get, and I could use it to, you know, develop those experimental tools when other molecules like proteins, not all proteins, of course, many proteins are very flexible and and now uh, are being, are being pursued by similar methods. But that was my original starting point. And then realizing that these dynamics are fundamental to all of the, uh, biology that RNA uh, participates in became just an exciting um, opportunity to continue along those lines and to see how these dynamics contribute to, to RNA biology. Wow, so, so it's interesting because your, I guess, approach when you're looking to amplify these changes is to, instead of changing the instrumentation, I guess, on first hand, you change the, the thing that you're looking at, which, which is really cool. Um, but that <laughs> brings me to my next point, where we saw that in, in many interviews, um, and talks, you really express your love of NMR. Um, it's been about almost 70 years since the technology was first developed and implemented. Um, what specifically about NMR do you find so elegant? What is there not to love about NMR? Is it, <laughs> so it's, it's uh, okay, so I, uh, so NMR is, there, there are many things to say. So I'll, I'll say a few things. So first of all, NMR is a very generous technique. And by that, I mean that if you, are going to learn NMR and use it, you will be exposed to such a beautiful array of disciplines. You know, so first you have to, you, you will learn quantum mechanics and you will learn the most beautiful principles of quantum mechanics, you know, including like the collapse of the wave function and the measurement problem. All the things about quantum mechanics that I think everybody should know, you will learn sufficient. If, you, if you're going to learn NMR, you're going to be exposed to enough quantum that, that you can really appreciate it. And in fact, you can do experiments because NMR is a quantum mechanical experiment, if you will. We have spins, they're spin up and spin down. So, you know, I love that aspect, the fact that there's quantum mechanics built into it and you learn about it. At the same time, there is this, in, this incredibly huge machine, you know, that is very intimidating, uh, that looks like it landed from, you know, some other planet. And it's got all these components and, you know, you'll work on NMR for the whole, for all of your life. and you know, you'll probably understand 0.1% of the operation of the instrument, you know, so it's this like very rich uh, instrument that has all these, you know, switches and controls and probes and electric technology all built into it that you have to, in a way, also appreciate as a user of the instrument. Um, but then, of course, you, there's the whole, uh, it, it gives you an instrument to think, to, to almost touch the atoms of a molecule, you know, because NMR, uh, relies on quantum phenomena, ultimately, to study the behavior of each and every single atom in the molecule. So I don't think there's any technique that brings you as close as being able to like, literally physically touch the atoms and see how they're moving in a molecule than you can do with NMR. Because 
it not only gives you information about the position of the atoms, but it can tell you about how they move, how they talk to each, how they stick to each other, uh, how they communicate with one another, how they change when something binds to them, how they their thermal motions change when you increase the temperature, and you you you're literally asking each every atom, you know, what are you doing? Uh, and there's this enormous plethora of experiments that you can design. You know, you can go in there and say, I want to design an experiment that will tell me if these two atoms are moving in concert or if these two atoms are moving in and out. So there's almost like a programming language, like NMR, and, and it's not only in the way you design the experiment, it also is in the way you design the sample. So there's a lot of ingenuity in like how you prepare your sample. And do you put stuff in there to align it? Or do you put stuff in it that makes it tumble faster? So it's just almost this, this enormous creative uh, enterprise inside NMR. And I feel that, uh, you know, many of my colleagues who used to do NMR but left NMR always tell me that while they don't use NMR anymore, their favorite type of scientist to hire into their group is somebody who trained in an NMR lab. And I, and I understand that because if you're doing NMR, you by necessity have to think on a very broad level uh, on many, many different, in many different, take many different perspectives. And obviously we still do biology in the lab. We do, you know, your typical molecular biology experiments. So my trainees have to wrap their mind around, around all of this. And I think that's an advantage. So that's a long answer to your question of what, what I think, why I think NMR is great. No, no, that's great. And, you know, it's, it sounds like you, you mentioned again, right, the disruption or the, the modification, not of the instrumentation, but of the sample too, which, which intrigues me because as someone who has, you know, has very little training in biochemistry, right, and structural biology, that's like a very intriguing thing to me. And it seems like it requires also a lot of creativity. Is that something that, you know, is, is that what, when you're sort of mentoring people in your lab, right, and um, thinking about these things with your colleagues, is that something like you always consciously try to bring to the table, this idea of creativity? Do, do you th is that like a priority for you in your lab? And how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so, so you know, I... Uh... That, that, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I you know, actively sit with my trainees and say, be creative, you know, uh, and how, how creative were you last week versus this week? But I'll tell you one of the hallmarks that I feel are unique to our lab uh, that, that at least I think people appreciate, well, not all, you'd have to ask them, uh, is we have very long group meetings. So my lab, our, 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 so we have like, our, our group meetings can go, I think the longest one was 12 hours, but they, they're typically you know, more than three hours, you know. And one of the key aspects of our group meeting is that we it's not a normal, like, here's what I did. An idea will, will somebody will say something and then somebody, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pull on that thread. And if it means taking it two hours away from whoever is presenting, we will just, sometimes it's educational. We're just trying to remind ourselves of the basics, you know. And we'll just like remind ourselves, you know, do you replicate DNA five prime end or the three prime end? No, why does it do it in five prime end? And we'll just like kind of teach each other what's going on. And in that process, you know, because it's that it's kind of very informal and filled with like humor uh, when we do this, um, I feel that that provides a space to to think creatively and to think about how these ideas might relate to something else and and. A lot of the creativity that I think happens in my lab has happened in group meetings. I mean, I have literally, I can point to that, well, during that group meeting, this happened, or during that group meeting. And so if I'm in trouble and I need something done, the best thing to do is have a group meeting and we can you know, <laughs> brainstorm the idea. So, so I feel group meetings are an essential, from, for me, uh, uh, instrument 
in bringing out the creativity of everyone because also everybody has a fun say you know it's important to allow trainees to i think the reason why a lot of trainees don't necessarily tell you about their ideas is because not not because they're not creative but they're afraid that it's a stupid idea or that it is uh you know not going to be right and nobody wants to be wrong and so most often than not i'll spell out all my stupid ideas you know i mean 99 of anybody's ideas are stupid or not going to work so i i i, I try to like, you know, state, no matter how crazy an idea, I'll just state it. And I hope that that helps others feel more comfortable than, you know, coming in with their own ideas. And I feel that that, that reduces the barrier for some uh, when it comes to, because I think many people are creative, but they don't necessarily express it, you know, which is different from, you know, so, so I think having an opportunity to express that creativity and providing that space, for me, it happens in the, in the group meeting. You've brought up your trainees and your group meetings a few times so far. What is the role of uh, mentorship in your career so far? How has that played a role um, as your career has developed? Yeah, so, so I've been very fortunate to have remarkable mentors, both as a PhD student and as a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, my PhD advisor gave me all the freedom in the world to do whatever I wanted, to pursue whatever experiment I liked, and was an amazing role model as a scientist who genuinely was a scholar, who cared about the science, was not flashy, was incredibly creative, and I have really looked up to him as, as a model for how I would like to, you know, be perceived by my trainees and how I would like to run my lab. Uh, and then I went to my postdoctoral, and, and so, so that I think was very important because it allowed me to discover myself as a scientist um, with my, as a PhD student. And then when I went to do my postdoctoral uh, training, uh, my postdoc advisor was also very, very hands-off. He, he, he allowed me to, again, do whatever I wanted and enabled me to sort of make the mistakes that one has to make in a career and find their way around and was just both have been incredibly supportive. But I feel that the freedom they gave me for me was quite important because I think I'm that kind of student or trainee that wants to do their thing and doesn't want to be told, you know, what to do, but that's not necessarily universally true. But, but I, 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 uh, I appreciated that, but they, at the same time, they were great role models for me uh, and, and were really inspiring. And, you know, uh, I think that beyond your mentors, your your advisors, um, I've, I've I've had a lot of I don't know if you call them mentors, but I've had a lot of uh, fellows, you know, fellow workers, co-workers who I feel were mentors in a way. They in the sense that they gave me good advice, they taught me how to think critically, and uh, inspired me to to pursue things. You know, for example, I'll just give one example. Like when I was in Sloan Kettering for my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, a another fellow scientist there who loved NMR you know, reinforced my own love of NMR and like the two of us just, you know, uh, so that convinced me that I was definitely going to stay in NMR, you know, and so I think that also played an important role for me, not just the the mentors, but also the co-workers. Um, and so I've tried to take what I can from my own experiences because I was very lucky with my mentors and try to emulate what, you know, their, many of their attributes. And, but I have to say, do I give my students as much free space as I enjoyed probably not because if I did that, we would never have all the grants that we need to have. You know, it's a different, um, I think it's a different era where funding is a little different, um, but I'm always cognizant of that. You know, That's great. And, and speaking of role models, I think I saw in either a talk you gave or an interview that you said your father is a major source of inspiration for your persistence to, you know, to pursue an education. And you also talked a little bit about your background and 
how just at a from a very young age you had to move you know you moved around a lot and does that those do those early experiences have they had an influence on you either you know on your research career or just in general yeah you know so yeah so i, th- I think that so you're absolutely right my father was a role model for for you know all of us in my family and um, both my sister and i are scientists you know my father was a veterinary scientist he was a professor of uh, pathology and, and, and veterinary science at, the, at, at, at in the University of Baghdad in Iraq, uh, where he was from, and uh, so and he was someone who was very passionate. And if he liked something, you know, you could be guaranteed he would persuade you to love it just as much. So it, it was a, it was a very easy thing for me and my sister to just listen to my father, you know, being in awe about some scientific phenomena, whether it's the universe or some the medicine that you take. And so, uh, so I think he really inspired us to become scientists and that's why she's a biochemist and, and I, and I'm a chemist. Uh, my two younger sisters decided to make money and they went into business, <laughs> but you know, the, you know, the, 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 me and my older sister are scientists. And at the time we, we, because I was born in Lebanon in Beirut, when the civil war started, we had to move around. And so I lived in Lebanon, Greece, Italy, and then went to high school in Wales, England, then did my undergrad in London and then came to the U.S. for my graduate degree. And so I obviously moved around a lot. And, uh, you know, I feel that that's been, uh, you know, obviously that has shaped my, like who I am as a person and, you know, my perspective. I have a very world global view of, of the world. You know, I, 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 you know, speak many, you know, I, I, at some point I was interchangeably speaking, you know, Arabic, English and Italian, and I couldn't tell which language was, was, was which, you know, so, uh, and so I definitely have a global perspective of the world. And also, um, I, I do feel that uh, this, you know, constantly changing the environment around you teaches you how to, adapt, you know, makes you more adaptable to, to the different circumstances. So I feel that I've learned how to adapt to different circumstances during my career because of that. You know, changing school at a young age or changing countries, you know, the transition from Rome to Amman, Jordan, you know, was was a pretty big one for me. I was uh, in third grade, so you know I think that that has been helpful for uh, being able to adapt, but also to realize that people around are you know human beings are great people. You know, so every time I've moved to a new place, I've always been able to find very nice people who have helped me to adjust to adapt, and I think that's I've I've always used that to our to the benefit of my adjustments, even in the United States and in my career. Uh, you know. Trusting that your fellow human being is, is, a, is a good person after all was, was maybe one of the things that I took, out, took from those experiences, you know. The other thing is you could say that because I was dynamically moving around, you know, <laughs> did I like dynamics because of that? You know, a lot of people ask me that question. You know? And I think there is probably maybe, maybe some semblance of truth to that, that, uh, uh, that I don't like still objects because maybe I'm always moving around, you know, but yeah. No, that's great. And it, I think it's pretty clear, at least from this conversation, that your father has definitely passed down the quality of convincing other people to be awed by the same thing that uh, you are awed by to you, so. <laughs> I know, I want, I want to look into NMR now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm great to know that. So on a different note, though, if you couldn't be a, a chemist, let's say, uh, what other field of study do you think you would have pursued? And then, I guess, to take it a step further, if you couldn't even be a scientist, what, would, what career do you think you would have chosen? Yeah, so, you know, I think... I, deep inside, would love to be a theoretical physicist. I, I still would, you know. I don't think I'm smart enough to be a theoretical physicist. Uh, but, but, I mean, ultimately, 
I that's my hobby actually. I, I do a lot of theoretical physics on the side, at least not not at the very deep level, but you know, I I'm I'm really fascinated uh, with many aspects of uh, theoretical physics, in particular, you know, like the quantum mechanics and the measurement problem and the many many world hypothesis, and so um, so I enjoy theoretical physics a lot and wish I was. I had the mathematical you know, skills needed to do it. I don't know if that's the reason I didn't pursue theoretical physics. I, I think I didn't pursue it because I thought I would never make money and I would be poor, so why do that? So I think that's the main reason I didn't pursue it. But I also don't think I, I'm smart enough to be a theoretical physicist. But um, so that would be, I mean, mathematics would be another p- option, you know, uh, for me, uh, perhaps. I may have considered that, but again, you know, I don't know if I uh, you know, would, be able, would be good at it. Uh, if I were not a scientist, you know, one one thing that, as I mentioned before, I enjoy my freedom, you know, and, and I, I don't think I would do well in a situation where there was uh, like a like a mandate and there was a nine to five job and I had to be there and I, you know, um, only because I'm I'm I, I don't have that kind of discipline, you know, to be able to to you know do that. I, I enjoy having the freedom and do things on my own terms and. So I, I don't. You like jiggling and wiggling. I like jiggling and wiggling. Yes. So, <laughs> so I think I think I would have, I would probably be an entrepreneur of some sort. I'd probably start up something, you know, you know, start some kind of company of some sorts, uh, doing something or other. It doesn't have to be in the biotech. And I mean, you know, maybe I could start a restaurant or, or you know. So, uh, but 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 I think that 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 would probably be if it wasn't if it's not a scientific career, it's maybe something like that. Yeah. I'm I'm not good. Unfortunately, I'm not good at anything else. I'm not a good. I mean, I'd love to be a sports person, but I'm not good at sports. I'm not good <laughs> at playing instruments. So you know, I don't have that many options. It's not like I'm. <laughs> and going off the you know the entrepreneurship sort of sphere, we saw that you founded a company about twelve years ago, focused on you know RNA structure characterization and RNA drug discovery. Obviously, that's a really seems to be an ever present and more emerging field right now. Um, do you think that represents like the future of? just drug discovery in general. And I guess, could you tell us a little bit more about why you started that company and where it is right now? So that, that, that's good. So let me first tell you what, do you know what the company's called? The company's called Nymerum. Now, what does that sound like to you? NMR. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so so, so, the, so the, the company's called Nymerum. I'll tell you what Nymerum means at the end, if we have time, you know? But what happened was the following. So at some point in time, a student came along that we were really trying hard to recruit to our program. And he was really interested in drug discovery. At the time, I had no interest in drug discovery whatsoever. But I convinced him that maybe with the jiggling, with the ability to visualize the jiggling and wiggling of atoms, that this could really help catalyze uh, you know, a new direction of drug discovery targeting RNA. Because one of the challenges with RNAs is that they're very flexible. So it's almost like you have a, a lock that's very, very dynamic. And how do you get a key to fit into that dynamic lock? So I, I literally used it as a ploy to like uh, recruit a student to the program. Student ends up joining the lab and says to me, OK, let's use the Jiggly and Wiggly to get drugs. And I said, I was just using that to recruit you. Are you really serious about this? So then we ended up actually uh, together putting together a project where we started to do what's called computational docking experiments against these ensembles of RNA structures that we had. And sure enough, it worked quite, I mean, I was, it was surprising to me, but it really panned out and was showing great promise in being able to predict whether or not a drug would bind an RNA molecule or not. 
And at the time I gave a talk uh, and my PhD advisor, who, as I mentioned earlier, is not flashy, is the most understated person, a great scholar, came up to me and he said, and you know, my nickname at graduate school was Hash. And he uh, called me Hash and he said, Hash, you should patent that technology, you know. And coming from him, who I, you know, I always listen to what my, my mentors say, by the way. I always, that's another advice I would give to, if you have good mentors, listen to them, you know. So the, so I, I thought, well, just, just to make sure. And he, and it was, and then a couple of times later, you know, he kept reminding me, did you patent that? So ultimately I thought, you know, I've got to do what my advisor says. You know, so I, I went to the patenting office and one thing led to another and Eventually, we founded the company uh, and with the idea that RNA was going to be a, an incredible target. Now, this was at a time when people were looking at us and saying, and why would you be targeting RNA? You know, this was at a time when RNA was not at all recognized. So one of the great things about Nymeram, I think, and we as a, my, me and my co-founder partners you know, celebrate all the time, is that we, our vision panned out, that this was going to be um, an area of great interest, you know, of course, we're still in the middle of the fight to find the drugs that can hit RNAs. And increasingly, the jiggling and wiggling of the atoms is proving to be a key puzzle in this race to find the small molecule drugs targeting RNAs. And so the student, by the way, who crystallized the project ended up being Naimiram's first employee. So, uh, you know, and and so that's, that's it's, a, it's a beautiful story, I think, in the sense that it emerged from the lab with a trainee. And, uh, and yeah, and so Nymira means, um, it, so it has the word NMR in it, which is great, but Nymirium, a variation of it, uh, means uh, without doubt, with great certainty. And so the idea was we were, you know, exploring this uncharted territory called RNA, but we wanted to feel confident and say that we're gonna, we're gonna succeed no matter what. And sure enough, we're here, we're alive, we're doing great. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. I, I want to ask about something really really quickly, I guess looking at the time, we probably should wrap up in a few minutes, but um, you've described a lot of the really successful projects in your lab and in your company as well. Um, but to me, when I first think of the field of drug discovery, the first thing that comes to mind is like is failure, right? That most drugs that are being started to be developed and go to market, they end in, in failure. What What is that process been like? How have you taken failure that is inevitable in scientific discovery and how have you worked with that? Yeah, so, you know, with regards to my lab, you know, it, you're absolutely right. I think the thing that we can do better is to always remind our trainees that 99% of the experiments or projects you do are not going to work and it's not your fault. You know, it's, that's the important part. You know, sometimes trainees don't fully understand whether it's did, did I do something wrong or, and, and that's just the nature of science and scientific discovery. And, you know, the, I think though, there are ways to, and I've tried to promote this style of science in my own lab, which is to anticipate the failure and build it into your program so that when you are planning things out, you know, you anticipate uh, all the kinds of things that can happen ahead so that you're not disappointed or you're not uh, thrown off balance when that happens. And so I think an implicit acknowledgement that failure is the most likely outcome of any experiment, including just like, you know, the, 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 by failure, I mean, like, there's multiple different kinds of failure, right? One failure is, I just couldn't pull off the experiment, right? Uh, that's a failure that occurs a lot. Uh, there's a failure also, which is that, you know, your experiment provides an out outcome that doesn't tell you anything. So now you're not here or there. 
And that kind of failure, uh, you know, is one that you can anticipate better and better because you don't want an experiment which can have an outcome that doesn't tell you that either you refute your hypothesis or support it, right? That, that, that if there's an outcome you can imagine where you have learned nothing from it and that outcome is a like, likely outcome to have, that's a bad experiment. Is there another experiment that minimizes so that we call those experiments win-win? Now, win-win doesn't mean that your favorite hypothesis wins the day, but there's no such thing, right? In science, we want truth. And so the question is, are you getting closer to truth? And if you are getting closer to truth, that's a win. Whether or not your favorite hypothesis wins the day, it doesn't matter. Failure is when your experiment doesn't get you closer to truth. And that, that's a different, that failure is something you're going to have a lot. But I think we can do a better job with our trainees to teach them to anticipate it. Because I've been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years. I know exactly what, I mean, including like you might slip and break the tube and never do the experiment. I mean, hopefully it won't happen, but, you know, you can anticipate those things and just share them. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and I think that helps both with the morale, but also to adjust. And the passion for the science, of course, is the fuel that, continue, that allows you to persevere in the face of failure. Well, that's great. So looking at the time, you know, uh, we, we usually ask our guests like a few rapid fire questions at the very end. So one of them is, and you know, we touched on this sure. a lot. Uh, what like book would you recommend to our listeners? It sounds like you've been doing a lot of reading. So maybe multiple book recommendations would be good too. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> there are, there, that, that, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Um, well, you know, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite book, which is right here. So Chance and Necessity by Jacques Monod should be a, oh, sorry, you can't see it because of the, so this is a book written by, you know, Jack Monod, who's a molecular biologist, which I think is for any molecular biologist or biochemist, a must read because it really illuminates biology in a way that is just beautiful. Uh, so that would be a science textbook. Yeah, that'd be, that would be the book that I would, I would recommend. And I think, I think anybody should, everybody who's doing molecular biology should read that. It would be pretty sad if you know, one hasn't read that already. We're definitely going to add it to the list. Uh, the next question we like to ask is if uh, our guest is if you are a coffee or tea drinker, and if so, what is your your go to drink? So I'm a uh, coffee is a very important thing in my life, and I'm very particular about it. So uh, I drink lattes. I drink two of them every day, one right after I wake up, and another one an hour later. And I usually do my run in between the two. I also like tea, uh, but I usually do decaf in the afternoon. Helps you get jiggling and wiggling. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Dr. Alshamish, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was an awesome conversation and we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Wow. I've never even heard mathematicians like Alan Turing and von Neumann being responsible for like setting the stage for the central dogma of biology. I mean, that's just crazy to think about. No, it absolutely blew my mind how Dr. Al-Hashimi was describing the uh, processes that occur in cells and cells themselves as computer programs and as different subroutines and lines in a, in a code. I don't know why, but as he was describing that, that like visualization in my mind was just, I don't know, that was crazy. Yeah, and it makes you wonder. I think it's clear that he's just really good at seeing how different things connect, right? I mean, I think that's partly because he said he reads so much and also because he's just willing to think in ways that most biologists don't, right? I mean, he's the first, I mean, if you, if you can even call him a biochemist, um, the first biochemist that I've talked to that just thinks in these 
sort of creative ways. And I think that really lends itself well to like the experiments he does. Yeah, it was very inspiring talking to him and hearing how open he is to incorporating different fields. Um, I was personally impressed with his vast knowledge of the history of mathematics and science um, and being able to pull those in into his work that he does now. Uh, so I had a great time during this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as usual, you guys know the deal. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Um, you can leave a review. You can rate our podcast. Um, and if you want, you can head over to our Instagram page at after double underscore office hours, where we will be posting a lot more content in the coming weeks. Yeah, and stay tuned for some really exciting guests uh, like Dr. Al-Hashimi in the near future. Our podcast is going to be popping and you do not want to miss it. Catch you on the flip.